Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Kellen, last week's episode was titled The Psychological Barriers to Confronting Collapse, and I really enjoyed doing that episode. As I mentioned last week, in the past, ideas of philosophy were never anything that were of interest to me, but they are absolutely fascinating to me now, and I'm still just barely scratching the surface. But last week helped me realize that it's a topic I'm fascinated in. And the whole purpose of that episode last week was to talk about some of the ways that we can combat natural biases that we have as humans. And the focus was primarily on these sort of negative ideas of the way that humans think and the way that they interact with the world around them. This week, though, the idea of this episode is to look at the opposite. And, you know, a lot of people have a pretty negative or cynical outlook on humanity. They view other people as sort of the worst side of human nature. Towards the end of last week's episode, we talked a little bit about these two competing parts of human nature, altruism versus egoism, right? Well, the purpose of today's episode is to sort of dispel a myth, one that's heavily proliferated by the media and one that's been talked about enough and told over and over again in the stories that we read, the movies that we watch in such a way that I think a lot of people think that it's true. And it sort of grasps onto that negative viewpoint of people. And it's that when disaster strikes in hard times, it brings out the worst in people. And what results is chaos, opportunistic, selfish acts, and violence. And this is actually something that has been 
really well studied, and it's been found that the opposite is actually true. Yeah, that myth that you're describing is something that I think a lot of people buy into. I think most people have the assumption that as soon as something bad happens, or as soon as there is some sort of a lapse in like the structures in place that enforce people to obey the law, suddenly everyone becomes lawless. And if you have that view or that belief, if you have bought into that myth, and you think that as soon as there is a major drought and there's crop failures and there's not food on the shelves, that suddenly everyone's going to resort to violence and looting and rape and just become absolute animals, then what is that going to cause you to do as you anticipate that for the future? Well, you're going to load up on a bunch of guns, right? And you are going to prepare yourself in a way that assumes the worst in people. Personally, I think that's extremely unhealthy. I think anticipating that for the future makes you less happy now, and it's going to result in bad things for you and for others when those negative events actually arise. So in my mind, it's extremely important that we have an accurate picture of what human nature and typical human behavior looks like in times of crisis. Absolutely. And you hit on some really good points there that we're going to dive into much deeper around sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy that can come from having a certain set of beliefs. And we'll lay out some specific examples of that exact thing happening in real life. These types of myths are super important to dispel. So much of the way that people view the world, the way that we view each other, the way that we view humanity, human nature, it all comes from what we're taught. It comes from what we're shown. We're sort of indoctrinated into it. And if we can dispel those myths and recalibrate our view on the way that things actually are and the way that things actually could be, that is one way to help create a better future. Now, with all this being said, I do want to throw in a quick caveat. This episode is talking specifically about disasters. We're going to be quoting from books and philosophies around how people react in the face of disasters. Obviously, an unprecedented collapse, one that lingers for decades, and one that would devolve to a point where there is something akin to The Road, right? The book, The Road, or the movie where there's just no chance at life continuing on. That's not the type of situation that we're necessarily talking about here. We're also not trying to paint a picture that every person everywhere turns to the good side of human nature when there are disasters. We're not trying to paint a picture of utopia or pretend that things are something that they're not. But I do feel like for a lot of people, this could constitute a bit of a paradigm shift for what the future holds. Yeah, in the research that has been done, there are a couple of terms that help us distinguish what we're talking about. One is acute stress and one is chronic stress. And at least physiologically, our bodies handle those differently. Like if we're talking about an event, a moment of crisis or some sort of a disaster that happens, those examples of acute stress actually prepare our body for resistance. Our immune system has an increased response and we have heightened awareness and we have more physiological readiness. Whereas chronic stress kind of slowly wears the body down. And so, you know, behaviors follow suit. And when we talk about what we anticipate with collapse, it's worth acknowledging that it's kind of this 
gradual decline for society as a whole. And yet for us as individuals, we're going to experience it in like fits and starts, right? There are going to be moments where things are fine for each of us, and there will be moments of crisis. And so there will be some kind of blend here, like living in the troubled times that we live in now, there is some of that chronic stress that can wear us down if we're not doing things to proactively resist it and take care of ourselves. But I just want to call out that when we have those moments of acute stress, our bodies are actually very well equipped to handle that. Yeah, great point. I love the way you pointed out that society as a whole, if you look at everything on an average, it might be a somewhat steady decline. But for individual people or individual communities, there will be shocks to the system. And likely there will be several shocks that one would categorize as a disaster, right? And the way we react to those are going to be different, but there are different ways that we as individuals can prepare for each. And while we won't go into deeply the the preparation side, we will go into what seems to be our natural responses to these events taking place. So there's two main books that I really liked on this topic. One is called Tribe by Sebastian Younger, and the other is called A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. Most of the research that I've done will be particularly from A Paradise Built in Hell. It's a book specifically about disasters and the response to them. But I'll also occasionally talk about Tribe as well. So I would recommend if you're interested in this topic, check out both of those books. But Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell, starts by talking about different aspects of human nature and different philosophers that have talked about them. So in the 1700s, there was a philosopher named Thomas Hobbes, and his belief was that it's authority that keeps people under control. He was the type to say that people are not inherently sociable. They're not cooperative. They are only out for themselves. They are egoists. They will do nothing rational unless it means self-gratification or self-promotion. And there was another named Le Bon who was in the 1800s, which believed that humans are basically savage and that the only thing that keeps us docile is the external social structures, again, like authority, like laws, and that without them, we would just be living in absolute chaos. And this is the type of belief that gets carried out by the media, that's portrayed in movies, and that can even be portrayed and believed by authorities in the, in the events of disasters. Solnit's view, though, in her book, is that human nature tends to be good. That people, for the most part, try to be cooperative, and that they tend towards altruism. Her point is that it's the coercive systems that we're a part of that stop us from realizing that goal. Now, she uses the words paradise and hell and basically says that disasters themselves are hell. And we can even say that we're living constantly in disaster in our own form of hell by sort of being held back by the systems that force us to live the way that we do. Sebastian Younger talks about this same idea that society at least today's society in Western culture is extremely isolationist. Everybody's out for themselves, not because they want to, but because our social structure is such that we have to in order to survive. Sebastian Younger actually talks about this being a huge reason for PTSD, that there are nations where PTSD, even though they're in a state of conflict, their PTSD rates are very low, but it's because they're part of a social structure that allows for higher cooperation and understanding, for more conversation, 
cooperation and that those things allow for PTSD levels to decrease. So back to Solnit, while she never outright states it in the book, she does have a pretty anarchist view of the world that basically people will thrive without authority, without privatization, without hierarchies. She quotes Kropotkin often, who had basically an opposing view to Hobbes or Le Bon, and that basically his idea that humans are generally good and seek strong social ties. The overarching principle of the book being that we're born into systems that sort of incentivize us into these Hobbesian and Le Bon parts of our human nature, these parts that are selfish and savage and egoistic in nature. But her thesis is that when disasters strike, as terrible and awful as they might be, they actually peel back the veil and reveal humanity's true nature, full of altruism and cooperation and mutual aid. And then she also points out pretty hard in the book that genuine cooperation among volunteers is actually usually much more effective than the response of government institutions or authorities. Going so far to say sometimes that authorities often do more harm than good in those situations. Yeah, I came across something, Corey, that I think Solnit actually references in her book. And it's the work of an individual named Charles E. Fritz. Apparently he's a big name in like modern disaster studies. And I'll just read something I picked up from an article. It says, Fritz's most radical premise, she explained, is that everyday life is already a disaster of sorts, one from which actual disaster liberates us. Since it gives each of us the chance to express the best in ourselves, the merging of individual and societal needs during a disaster, Fritz argued, provides a feeling of belonging and a sense of unity rarely achieved under normal circumstances. And so I I think that is a bit of a radical premise. Like it's a paradigm shift to think the systems that we're in and the day-to-day type of lifestyle that we're experiencing, that's the disaster. And that an actual moment of crisis or a a real disaster liberates us from that. It kind of gives us a chance to escape And I like the way that's stated. It creates this merging of individual and societal needs. And therefore, you get this feeling of belonging and unity and that disaster can actually open up a side of human nature that we don't get to experience otherwise. Yeah, there's a great example from the book that I'll mention here. And by the way, the book is full of like dozens of different examples, a few of which she goes very deep into. But one's the San Francisco earthquake that happened in 1906. And I'm just going to read this uh, summary of one of her chapters, she talks about a woman named Anna Holzhauser. And she says, Anna Holzhauser, a beautician who left her damaged house and began a soup kitchen in a nearby park. The soup kitchen was renamed the Mitzpah Cafe after a Hebrew word denoting a feeling of connection between people who are separated or a place where people meet in emergencies. The cafe had an outsized social role as a gathering place compared to its ramshackle appearance. Despite the heavy damage to the city and death toll of over 3,000, Citizens were for the most part cheerful and happy to help each other. In the chapter, she goes on to talk about how, you know, this one particular woman took it upon herself to start this tiny little kitchen where she could feed as many people as possible. Soon there were dozens of volunteers helping to procure and source food and and beverage. They basically, in no time, had an entire operation up and running, which ended up feeding hundreds of people every day. And of course, all of this for free, just to try and keep things moving, to keep people together, to keep people happy, to help people survive. This crisis, this earthquake, if you haven't heard much about it, 
destroyed basically all of downtown San Francisco. And while the earthquake was terrible, the fires that occurred afterwards were much worse. And because of those fires, people were basically completely evacuated from all of their homes in downtown San Francisco, forced out, authorities would not let them reenter, and they had to basically make do on the outskirts of the city. And there are numerous instances and stories, memoirs that were written in the years after the earthquake, full of people describing the way that they felt, the joy, the way people worked together. One writer described how she went to purchase some face cream in the months after the disaster, but decided not to because doing so would necessitate bringing some of the old permanents back. A permanence that included class divisions and material possessions for some, while others had nothing. She also expresses that there's something lasting to this new way of being, a hopefulness and inclusivity that she senses will leave them all changed. Then it mentioned that another commenter remarks on how pleasant society is without the evils of money, wishing it were always so. And so all of this isn't to say that there wasn't terrible things happening, right? People were dying, homes destroyed. There was, of course, a lot of anxiety and grief and sadness. But for the most part, people came together and did good. There's one individual in this circumstance whose name was William James. William James was a philosopher of the time. He was sort of at the peak of his career when the earthquake happened. And he had actually had this philosophy, similar to the one that you mentioned, Kellen, that day-to-day life is sort of the drag and that it's what keeps people from being altruistic. And he had this theory and going into the earthquake, once it happened, he realized that it basically affirmed everything that he believed. One section of the book says, James met the earthquake with glee, an experience he later documented in an essay called On Some Mental Effects of the Earthquake. Two important observations struck him. First, how quickly people made order out of chaos. And second, the equanimity with which people dealt with the earthquake. Rather than suffering through personal struggles without a support network, the difficulty was collective. And this is where I think one of the most important philosophies comes from all of this. And it's one that you alluded to, Cohen, in our introduction to the episode. And it's that beliefs matter. William James was a pragmatist. And part of that field of philosophy looks at the consequences of a statement rather than its truth. So I'll explain a little bit what that that means here in a minute. But he asked the question, what difference would it practically make to anyone if this notion rather than that notion were true? So a great example of this is if you consider the the belief in God. What James is asking isn't, does God exist? What matters is, what are the consequences does the actual belief in God have? So it's irrelevant whether or not God exists, if he's out there, if the belief is linked to the truth or not. What matters is, what does that belief do for a person? How do they act on that belief? Well, when it comes to a belief in God, there might be good reactions. There might be good consequences of that, such as a desire to serve others, self-reflection. There are also negative consequences to a belief in God. Look at the conquest, judgment, persecution. But it pertains to this question because we're asking, what consequences does a belief that people are evil or that people will succumb to a negative human nature? They'll resort to egoism and selfishness and savageness and disaster. If they have no order or no authority telling them what to do, that they're going to do bad things, What consequences does that belief have? And one of the main ones you mentioned, which it changes how I as a person am going to prepare for that. In prepping circles, you know, in sort of conventional prepping that you would find out there, the advice is 
like have a bunker, have all these weapons, booby trap your house. I shouldn't say that's conventional prepping. That's pretty extreme prepping. But it is this idea that if you have food, people are coming for your food and you're going to have to kill them so that they can't take it. Right. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when everybody starts stocking up on weapons and looks at everyone as if they're the enemy. When you treat people with suspicion, when you treat them like the enemy, well, they're going to treat you the same way back, and suddenly you have a bunch of enemies with a bunch of weapons. And that sounds really simplistic to say, but there are actually several examples of this happening in real life in response to disasters simply because of the narrative that the media tells and the narrative that authorities tell. Yeah, what you're describing there, kind of that self-reinforcing feedback loop of human behavior, or like you said, a self-fulfilling prophecy, to me is fascinating. And it makes sense. The, the way that we view other people is going to affect the way that we behave towards other people. And, and while you're here diving into that, I'm thinking back on what you described with the San Francisco earthquake and all the fires. Corey, you may remember that maybe a year ago, I can't remember how long ago it was, but in the area that where we live, there was kind of a minor disaster. There was a really intense windstorm that came through one night. It knocked over a lot of really big trees and did some pretty intense damage in some cases. And I remember that waking up, there was first this moment of shock, looking around and seeing kind of all the just carnage. You know, my wife and I, we loaded our kids into the car and we started driving around and we were just in awe as we saw houses that had giant trees that had crashed down on them and, and other effects from this windstorm. But it was amazing. The rest of that day and the next day and the day after that, there were people that were reaching out to me, neighbors that I hardly ever interact with that were asking if I was doing okay and if I needed anything. I was reaching out to other people. A lot of people took time off work, kind of stepped away from their normal routine and got their trucks and trailers and chainsaws and, and started going around helping clean up all the damage. And you would think it would be this negative experience in my mind. And yet that event was kind of like this magical, positive experience. I witnessed people all coming together, trying to help each other. My guess is that most people, despite what they see in the movies, if they were to think back on times when individuals have either experienced a crisis, like a death in the family or a car accident on an individual level, or when they've seen disasters on a larger scale in their local area, most people would probably recognize that they saw a lot of people trying to reach out and help each other and support each other. Like people came together and there was a lot of service and altruism. Anyways, it, it my guess is it creates some kind of cognitive dissonance in people where, where they've got this view that they see from the media that maybe doesn't exactly jive with what they've seen in their personal experience. And so maybe some of how we think about and view other people in times of crisis is is really just a choice. Absolutely. If you if you think of any Hollywood movie about a disaster, and Solnit brings this up in her book, you can go back to movies we've talked about in the podcast, The Day After Tomorrow, other disaster films. There's always the protagonist who is likely a white male hero 
right, who helps the poor stranded woman and there's a romance that develops during the the movie and in the end our hero saves the day. And she talks about how that's sort of the idea that's portrayed in the media during disasters as well, right? The brave police officer who saves somebody or or whatever that is. Meanwhile, who are they saving people from? Well, it's from oftentimes the looters or the the people who are are doing bad. There's an interesting term that comes up in the book. It also comes up in other studies. There's a lot of disaster studies that have been done, and it's called elite panic. And they talk about the sort of difference between elite panic and the resilient populace. And elite panic is this idea that authorities, you know, maybe the mayor of the town, the president or whoever is sort of in charge of the disaster response, right? This could be a sergeant in the military or the local police chief. Whenever there's a disaster, they tend to believe and perpetuate the thought that the biggest threat is the people. It's not necessarily the disaster. So after the San Francisco earthquake, there was a general in the military responding who made the call to basically shoot on sight any looters because there was this fear that he had that it was going to be the military against the people because there was a loss of law and order. And she tells the story about how that was far from anything that happened. There were really very few people at all that had any intention to break any laws or to steal private property, but that because of this elite panic and the messaging that was put out from it, that there needed to be this preparation for strict lockdown and curfew and people had to be controlled, it actually ended up hampering people's efforts to help each other. Now, if that was as bad as it got, that would be great. But in other examples like New Orleans, things took a turn for even the much, much darker. So to go into this example a little bit, I think we all likely have some memory, I guess if you're over the age of 17 at this point, of Hurricane Katrina. This was in 2005. Basically, the hurricane broke through the levees in New Orleans, buried some areas up to 30 feet in water. Thousands of people died. But the mainstream media, the reports that were coming out from this, was of mass looting, of mass murder, of rapes, rapes of children, and the authorities responded to those rumors. And in most cases, and I'll get into detail a little bit further on this later, they were just that. It was just rumor. This type of stuff was not happening, not nearly to the degree that it was being proclaimed. But because of it, New Orleans, the people who were stuck there, it basically became an imprisonment for them. Many of them could not leave. They did not receive the help that they were supposed to receive. FEMA was extraordinarily awful at responding to the disaster. But authorities clamped down and treated people terribly because of this strong belief in the violence and lawlessness that was happening. You know, the media would show the same clip over and over again of a couple of African-American men running into a store and removing television sets. And so then the narrative was that all over the city, all African-Americans are running into all stores and removing all private property. But this happened to such a degree, this rumor was proliferated to such a degree that there were locals who were sitting out on their porches with shotguns getting ready to shoot anyone who walked by, specifically any African-American that walked by. There was a sheriff who actually went around to one neighborhood. It was a mixed neighborhood of white and African-American citizens telling white people, using the N-word, 
to shoot black people that you saw, right? The lawlessness went both ways. It wasn't just criminals who could take advantage of having no laws. In this aspect, people were encouraged to shoot others because of the paranoia of one sheriff. There are multiple stories of murders that did happen. One attempted murder, this person still tells their story, basically saying that he was trying to get his cousin out of their neighborhood. And upon trying to leave the neighborhood, was approached by a man with a shotgun who fired at him, struck his jugular artery. He's bleeding out. He tries to go and get help while the guy reloads to come shoot him again. The guy shoots him again in the back. He gets up and is finally able to leave, barely makes it to a hospital in time, still has all these scars from it. And he said, I'm a, I'm a Brinks security driver. I'm around tens of thousands of dollars every day. It's my job to safely move that money. He said, I'm walking out of this neighborhood with a bunch of money in my own pockets just to try and get me and my cousin to safety. And because I'm black in this neighborhood, it was, it was free game on me, basically. There were white men in interviews who proudly proclaimed that they murdered multiple African-Americans saying we knew they were looters because they had backpacks and those backpacks had nice clothes in them. And they got away with it. Nobody investigated that further. And they believe that there were dozens of these types of killings done in the name of preventing looting. And Solnit asks a very obvious and relevant question, basically saying, why are we using our resources as law enforcement to clamp down on the people to shoot looters who, whose crimes are stealing personal property like TVs, in many cases when they weren't even looters, when there are hundreds of children and elderly people drowning? Why are our resources being used to fight people when our resources should be used to save people? As you're describing this, it's hard for me not to feel just a lot of anger and injustice. I know what happened years ago, but it's interesting because I actually did some research on my end on how people responded at the time of Hurricane Katrina. And when it comes to all the documented cases and, and the research that's been done, there is just such an overwhelming number of positive, you could even say altruistic examples. Like If you collect all the stories of what took place, the vast, vast majority is just people helping one another. You know, victims of the disaster doing much of the rescue work, finding others, helping others, not only in the immediate aftermath of the hurricane, but even going forward, helping each other rebuild. There was just so much good that took place. And so to think that because of the way the media portrayed an isolated case or two of looting, you know, that resulted in people feeling this fear and panic and enacting violence against each other, like that relatively small collection of awful, tragic, dark things that took place was so unnecessary. And it wasn't what people were naturally inclined to do. And you know, it's not to say that there was no looting, right? Or no violence. Of course, those things happened. This is in a city where criminal actions are happening every day. Of course, those people who are criminals are going to likely continue to engage in criminal activity when the opportunity arises. But these aren't your good neighbors who when the law wouldn't respond, suddenly decided to go wild and become these dark criminals, right? I think one good last sort of bit of info to show the exaggeration of the rumors that were happening and the effect that they had. 
the Superdome was used as sort of a shelter of last resort, and it filled with people. It got into the 90s, extremely humid, no air conditioning. And so there were these widespread rumors of rape, rumors of violence and murder. The coroners were ordered to take a refrigerated truck and pick up what were believed to be 200 dead bodies in the Superdome, mostly as a result of the violence. When the truck got there, they found only six, all of whom died of natural causes related to the heat, except for one, which was a suicide. Like you said, there was so much good happening. There are hundreds of stories of sacrifice, of mutual aid organization that was happening. One person told a story of how there were gangs. Groups of teens and 20-something black kids were going around, fanning the dying elderly, finding water for the kids, and helping mothers carry their babies. They said that those kids were broken down from watching those women and children suffer. And while they were in a city full of opportunities to commit crime, instead they were trying to help the vulnerable. So the whole idea and the whole reason to even bring up elite panic is just to say that oftentimes the very institutions and structures which are supposed to help keep us stable, which are supposed to be what protect us supposedly, are often the ones that can actually inhibit or create issues during the times of disasters. You know, I am the type of person where I personally maybe don't believe that anarchism is something that is going to be attained through like voluntary change in our societies or even through revolution. But I do think that as conditions worsen and as people go through these types of disasters, it is anarchist principles that will help allow people to come together and create communities that can support each other, that can thrive during these awful times. And they will do so when authority, when government tries to stop it. In the book, she makes mention about how, in many cases, authorities will put a halt to mutual aid activities. They'll cite, you know, it's in the name of safety, it's in the name of public interest. But the real reason is often that I think elites fear that citizens can do better without them than with them, and they don't want that to be seen or noticed. And so they clamp down, making sure that they can maintain control of every situation but that often results in a more lackluster result, can result in additional deaths and less effective response to these types of disasters. So that elite panic that you describe is clearly a very real threat during times of disaster. I imagine almost any time there's really severe fear or panic, whether that's among elites or the general population, uh, you know, that's going to cause people to act irrationally. But when we talk about the fact that during times of disaster, there's just so much documented good, a lot of that is, you know, kind of from these case studies and people relating their experiences and researchers trying to collect all of that to figure out how the population behaved. But, you know, there are even cases of controlled studies that show that people naturally in times of stress become more cooperative. There's an example of a study, they were looking at male participants in particular, and a lot of that was because there's kind of a stereotype out there that males become more aggressive during times of crisis. But they had, you know, the the two groups, they had the control group, and they, they put the one side through some very stressful procedures. They were having them do like complicated arithmetic problems, and they were doing public speaking exercises and that was going on with the experimental group while 
The other group, the control group, wasn't having to experience any of that. And then they were all asked to play like an economics game involving potential financial gain based on what kind of choices they made. And the researchers found that rather than becoming more aggressive after stress, the men in the stress group actually became more trusting of others. They were more likely to cooperate. They were more likely to share profits. And so whether it's in a controlled study or just during these natural cases of disaster, people really do react in a collaborative and cooperative way. And you might think, why? Why does that happen? Some of the models and theories that have been put out there by researchers are that social connection becomes especially important under stress because stress naturally leads to people feeling a loss of control and more vulnerability. So that that sense of helplessness causes them to reach out for support and connection. They find that, you know, returning veterans, when they do research on those that have been through combat together, they describe this like tight bond that occurs between service members on the battlefield. And there's all these examples of soldiers running into the line of fire to save somebody else. And and these experiences are so bonding and so profound that they actually see that it makes some veterans desire to return to war. Some of the researchers who dive into this and, and are trying to figure this out, you know, they describe it as pro-social behavior as opposed to anti-social behavior. And they get into the philosophy that we've touched on here and there where they, they wonder whether altruism can really exist. You know, they call that kind of helper's high that somebody gets, that warm, fuzzy, good feeling when somebody has an act of kindness. They place the label on those behaviors as impure altruism because clearly there is some benefit. But that leads to something else that's come up in the research, which is just fascinating to me. And that is that altruistic behavior results in physiological benefits to individuals. So again, going back to this question, why? Why do people help each other and sacrifice during times of crisis? Well, here's a statement from the British Journal of General Practice. And I find this really interesting. It says, for example, in altruistic individuals, increased activity in the posterior superior temporal cortex has been reported when compared with less altruistic individuals. Individual acts of kindness release both endorphins and oxytocin and create new neural connections. The implications for such plasticity of the brain are that altruism and kindness become self-authenticating. In other words, kindness can become a self-reinforcing habit requiring less and less effort to exercise. Indeed, data from functional magnetic resonance scans shows that even the act of imagining compassion and kindness activates the soothing and affiliation component of the emotional regulation system of the brain. And so there are parts of our brain that become activated that allow us to feel better there are those releases of endorphins and oxytocin, even when we just imagine acts of compassion. People get into a stressful situation, a time of crisis, a disaster. Human nature, the human brain actually rewards people for going and helping one another. And you get the kind of bond that we talked about with 
you know, veterans of combat, you get this social connection that helps people feel supported while they are feeling most vulnerable and helpless. All of that combined paints this picture. And like you mentioned before, Corey, there's just so much research that's been done on this. The more that I study up on it, the more I become convinced that people are good and I can expect people to, generally speaking, bond together and help one another when times get tough. You know, we've brought up in the podcast before, I don't remember what episode it was, but I remember talking about the idea of what happened during the Blitz, a time period in which Hitler had started this campaign of bombing against London. And it was a long time period. And when it started, officials in the UK were extremely concerned about the psychological well-being of the people in the city. Psychologists and many others were warning that there was going to be sort of this mass psychosis, that there would be people being driven mad. I don't remember the numbers, but there was some insanely huge number of expected suicides. And in the end, when it was all said and done, they actually found that the opposite had been true, that overall mental health had increased during the Blitz because people were looking out for each other. There were all sorts of acts of altruism. There was mutual aid. There was this new sense of purpose and meaning and belonging for people that they had not experienced before. In Solnit's book, she talks about a a lady who had been terrified of being hit by a bomb. It was something that she had thought about recurring in her mind over and over again. And then one day it happened. A bomb landed near her and she was pretty injured from it, but she made it through. And she described having felt a joy that she had never felt in her life before, that having made it through that, even in the moments after it happened, she felt like she was on top of the world, like there was nothing that could bring her down. And she felt guilty for feeling that joy because she knew that people were dying. But a lot of times these types of crises empower people. When we so often feel powerless and subjugated to our daily circumstances, to a grind that we feel like we can't get out of, to realize in those situations we have some control and we have more power than than maybe we even did before. You think back to September 11th, you know, I think of the days and weeks following September 11th and all I can remember is this I was young, I was only 11, but I remember this feeling of just unity. I was not anywhere close to New York, but I remember this sense of closeness with people. Even in just watching on the TV as they were unfolding the news as it was happening, you just felt this sort of sense of camaraderie, of solidarity. And on the ground in Manhattan, that was what was happening. People were helping each other. There was a story of a man who was in the towers, decided he needed to leave. Authorities in the building were trying to get people to stay. This was early on. They had been told, stay in the building, don't leave. I believe he was in the South Tower. The North Tower was the only one that had been hit, but he felt like he needed to leave, so he pushed his way past. And as he left, someone held him back as a huge pane of glass came towering down. He said he would have been skewered. He was sure by a thousand pieces of glass. He said he then noticed body parts on the ground. He saw a severed arm at the elbow. He said he looked up and saw somebody who had jumped and was falling. And he said he remembers just feeling this intense sense of compassion. And he was taken aback because he was convinced that in in a moment like this, he would have panicked. He would have screamed. He would have run. He would have lost his mind. But instead, he just sat and stared at the guy falling, 
thinking about him, wishing there was some way he could reach out and help. The idea of the story was basically to show that while there's this overall idea of just utter panic in times of crisis, people losing their minds, running every which way, people actually tend to react rationally and in a way that lends towards helping others. And there were dozens of different examples cited on 9-11 of this exact thing happening. And that looks different for everybody, right? You, you know, we recently spoke about the shock that people sometimes go into when they experience something really extreme, especially when that normalcy bias is at play that prevents really any action. But shock and inaction is very different from going and doing awful things to harm other people. You know, individuals definitely panic and people all react in different ways in stressful situations. But it really is just so rare that somebody sees a disaster as an opportunity to do something malicious or harmful to others. I just find it so interesting that it seems like the predominant belief is that if there was a prolonged power outage and people knew the power was never going to come back on again and the grocery stores were empty and whatnot, that the single mom next door is suddenly your enemy and she's going to come over and murder you in your sleep for your food, right? Or the tatted Harley driver across the street or the African-American father of three next door. Like whoever it is, this idea that suddenly this person that maybe you tipped your hat to the day before going to work is now going to be this person that is going to go full savage and, and murder you. You know, it's, it's paranoia. It's a Hollywood style of thinking. You want to be the hero in your own story, right? The macho who saves the damsel in distress or whatever the case is. The reality of collapse is that it's going to be a long series of disasters in which, for the most part, people will strive to help each other to the best of their abilities. Is that to say that everyone is going to be altruistic? No. Is that to say that there aren't going to be people who commit crimes? No, they will happen. And the further along the collapse pathway we go, the more hungry people get, the more desperate people get, there, of course, will be more opportunities for irrationality and for criminal behavior. But I tend to think that for the most part, people would sooner allow themselves to starve to death than inflict physical harm on someone else. Most people are not willing to commit atrocities for another meal. And the stronger bonds that we can create now with our communities, with our neighbors, the more likely we are to have these successful community interactions in times of need when it really matters. The last thing that I'll mention here that was talked about in Rebecca Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell, is the idea that many disasters can create lasting change. While oftentimes a disaster will happen, people will come together, they'll form these amazing bonds. It seems as if for a little bit, that true human nature comes out, those sort of utopias as she describes them take place, and then society takes them back to a normal way of living, what we call a normal way of living. But there are circumstances, and there have been times in the past, where these types of disasters on a large scale can cause real change in a society. One example that she cited was the Mexico City earthquake in 1985. There had been a lot of widespread corruption, Buildings had been built to subpar standards, you know, in order for construction companies to save money and government officials looked the other way in order to allow that to continue to happen. And this was very apparent during the earthquake 
when tons of people died in buildings that should have been able to remain standing. One woman named Marisol headed to work that morning, even after the earthquake happened, not knowing what else to do, and found that in the days to come, even though the shop workers, she worked in a clothes manufacturing facility, the shop owners were still supposed to be paying their employees, but they made themselves scarce. They couldn't be found. They were refusing to make payments. And it was from this that she and many others realized that they had the ability to stand up for themselves and demand unions, demand better pay. And they did that. Some of the first female unions came from this organization. Also from this came social risings that caused a change in regime, the rise of something called civil society, basically this idea that society could exist outside of the sort of mandated roles that the government assigned you was possible. And Mexico, and specifically Mexico City, has been a changed place ever since because of that. We've said it often, and we'll say it again here, but any sort of resiliency, any sort of ability to make it through many of the disasters that will happen throughout collapse can only be done through community. And if there's any hope for any sort of lasting change into the future, it's not going to be done by an individual who barricades himself in his home with a year's supply of food. It's going to be in communities who work together to help each other make it through. The purpose of this episode is not to give off some sort of hopium vibe of saying that if people just band together in communities, then everyone will make it through collapse. That is in no way what we're saying. But the idea, the myth that people become savage, they turn against each other at the first sign of disaster and lawlessness is just absolutely false. In future episodes, most likely not in this podcast, but in a new podcast to come, we hope to discuss much more deeply the ideas of community, how communities can be built, how people can strengthen the communities that they're already in, and how the idea of resiliency and preparation can be done through the lens of community. We appreciate you all for listening this week. Thank you so much. We look forward to speaking again next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.